Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the very first podcast from the Esther Klein Gallery. My name is Angela McQuillan and I'm the curator and I'm here with Tyler Klein, who's our current exhibiting artist. Um, hey Tyler, how's it going? I'm doing good. Weather's beautiful. <laughs> yes, it's like 75 degrees in February. <laughs> um, so you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your artistic process? Yeah, so I'm an interdisciplinary artist. I'm really interested in um, where different processes such as sculpture, painting, printmaking, video installation meet and how they define themselves uh, in an aesthetic landscape. I am the curator of the Hamilton Hall Public Art Initiative at the University of the Arts as well as the Sculpture Shop Supervisor at the University of the Arts. Uh, I've been in Philly for about 14 years. Uh, before that, I was in Portland, Oregon, and before that, I grew up outside of Atlanta. And I'm happy to be here. Awesome. You're very busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, let's talk about your show. So it's a very interesting title, Geist Denkenheit. Is that how you say it? Yes. So I basically made a big uh, German compound word um, that I was hoping would express the phenomenon of the brain uh, creating the mind, like how we psychologically conceive ourselves, how that intermixes in with other people's perceptions of us, and also how technology increases our awareness of uh, not only the structure of the brain, but how the mind works. Um, it can expand the reach of the mind, and I think it can also diminish uh, the reach of the mind. So when I was looking up the, the roots of this word Geistenkenheit, I kind of came up with this um, phrase, the spirit of thinkingness. Is that kind of like what that translates into? Yes. I, I really love the word Geist, um, there's a shape and a form to its phonics that I've always been intrigued with. I've always been intrigued with the word zeitgeist, um, which comes out of Hegelian philosophy, uh, which is a cultural phenomenon, basically meet, translating to the spirit of the times, um, something that as a curator and artist, you're always trying to plug into or at least be aware of. Um, and then the Denken is thinking, and height is kind of a state of um, the body's being. I started with uh, this word, and how could I define this word, and what does it mean to me and other people? And, and I began by looking at and researching uh, current imaging of the brain. Um, in the past 10 years, there's been an explosion in research through various um, scanning techniques of just how our brain is structured and uh, how information and um, electromagnetic phenomenon flow through neural pathways. Uh, you know, it's, it's really beautiful, um, but the after a while, I wanted to kind of internalize this research and... So I was looking at a lot of pictures, you know, being um, taking cues from visual information, 
and just fascinated with um, how this research was composed. Um, yeah. You know, some people would depict connections as a circular phenomenon and how they would meet through the middle. Some people depicted connections just purely how um, electromagnetic energy flows through pathways. Well, you're talking about uh, different types of networks. Yes. Yeah, like when you say all the information goes through one, one path that's like a centralized network and there's many different kinds. And I think something interesting about your work in particular is that even before you really got into all this like brain stuff, you always kind of uh, depicted networks. So um, that's like a, a modern way that, that neuroscientists use to study the brain and like figure out the spatial organization of neurons. Um, so yeah, I mean, in your work, what, what do those networks mean to you? Uh, you know, they come out of a social phenomenon. Um, I think because I lived in a uh, numerous places as a young child, and then I moved around a lot um, in my 20s. It gave me a broader perspective of how we make friendships and how we make connections between each other and how past connections inform um, you know current current social dynamics. You know friendships it's a it's another like big world, but I'm, you know, in my art, I'm always looking to where the macro fits in with the micro. I mean, you, do, you see echoes from how our brain structures thoughts to how we interact socially with one another, how cities are formed, um, and then speculating into the future, uh, you know, like space colonization could start to follow or echo these same networks. Yeah. And I feel like um, you're, you're talking about like these social networks and you know, moving from place to place, and something that really plays into that also is memories. Yeah, definitely memory and how we retrieve memory and how we misremember things, uh, created memory, shared memory. Um, these are all very fertile and fast, you know, fascinating areas that most artists draw from, um, you know, especially if you're working conceptually uh, and tying back into you know studying the brain um, they've been able to locate specific areas um, in the hippocampus where memories are formed and it also seems to be an area that is a neurogenerator um, and so it it's fascinating that there's that there could be this specific location um, this biological phenomenon to describe what really, as we conceive it in our mind, is something that expands beyond ourselves and commingles with other people's memories. I mean, one of the things that I, I took away from creating this installation, doing this research, is that our minds are very porous. They, they do flow outside of our corporal body and they, I see them intermingling and dissolving um, into people. Kind of a collective that, consciousness. Yeah, I think there's, a, I mean, I think there's, you know, like this big collective consciousness. Um, but I think you also have very local and acute consciousnesses that could, 
that are formed through families, formed through uh, close friendships. Yeah. Um, also, even just personal experiences. I mean, everyone experiences the same situation very differently, and people's memories of a of a situation might vary greatly amongst one another. So, that's something that fascinates me is is things that are either generated memory or misremembered. I think um, most memories are probably misremembered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, you know, it's like having, having two small children, I'm always fascinated with what they remember. You know, like I'm, I'm always oh, I'm asking them, oh, do you... do you <laughs> that with my kids. <laughs> do, you, do you remember this or how do you remember that? Or, you know, what do you remember? And it's always very different. Um, I think it's interesting um, when my memories as a child... I would always remember like one little specific thing that my mother said and it would like stay with me forever and she never remembers saying that. You know what I mean? Like oh, the I, things I, that you pick yeah, up on. I completely sympathize <laughs> with you there. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, like do I do those things and will I do those things as my children age? Um, will it be selective? Will it be conscious? And... Well, what do you think about memories being more accurate with more technology? Like nowadays we have more photos, we have more videos, like everything is recorded. It's true. So we have this very, what we consider an objective record, although both video and photography can be easily manipulated, um, and it's, it's static. And I sometimes think it's making us remember less because we basically are carrying around external hard drives in which we... You mean your phone? Are, yeah, phone, <laughs> laptops, you know, tablets, any of these screens that we basically go, you know, we go screen to screen. So it doesn't have to make the same imprint. You know, there's... Um, well, now we have all our screens all on one cloud, so maybe that's our external hard drive. It's, it's true. It, but at the same time, I see the internet becoming more specialized and walled off. Yeah. You know, like it's at a certain point you could go to any URL and uh, retrieve JPEGs. Now you have to download apps. I mean, it's becoming a walled garden. And maybe this is a way of our technology mimicking how our brains are structured, where you do have very specific areas within your brain that deal with different uh, phenomenon. You know, our occipital lobe for vision and uh, frontal lobes for planning and logic. Now we have Instagram, you know, for static images. You just had a, a vast network with the Vine app kind of in limbo. Um, so that's a... a strange way of our, you know, the internet as our central nervous system of the 21st century um, having selective amnesia or could it be looked at as a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's as, as these big things are kind of shuttered because they're not making enough money or they're not yeah. pulling in enough information. But it's also kind of a projected reality that's not our real reality. I mean, everything on the internet like Instagram, Vine, etc., that's all kind of a facade of who we really are, I feel like. So... What well, is? It's, I mean, it's... It's an extension of ourselves, but it's not fully ourselves. No, it's not fully articulated. and It's a veneer. It's how we carefully curate, curate the images 
that we want to represent us. Mm -hmm. And it's changed drastically in the past decade. I mean, you know, MySpace and Facebook and anybody remember Friendster? Yes. And young people were putting like crazy, you know, their crazy debauched youngness on there. And um, now it's become something like uh, a cloud resume for many people. Yeah, and I, mean, I don't think I want to remember all that <laughs> stuff. I definitely don't want other people to remember. <laughs> oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm really glad they did not exist when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Oh, I think I still have some images up of those times. So in previous discussions that we've had about your show, you mentioned that you were highly influenced by the writings of Ray Kurtzwill. And I feel like that kind of, uh, you know, relates to this because he, he hit one of his theories is that like we're gonna humans are gonna be connected wirelessly from our neocortex to a synthetic neocortex in the cloud I mean how probable do you think that would be in the future well software would have to get a lot better um, I mean part of that is it's terrifying and part of it I don't see that I don't yeah. because because software is so buggy and because um, I mean, we're continuous. We, we are not built um, as a binary system. We're not constructed with zeros and ones. That's how I see it. Other people would argue differently. You know, there's, there's you know, another, to flip to something else I was reading about um, quantum loop gravity where they thought gravity is granular and was binary and the basis of everything is binary. I, I don't see it that way. I see more of a continuous spectrum um, and I, you know, our digital technology was all built with the gun of the Cold War at its head to, to quickly, quickly crack ciphers. Um, and so maybe if it would have been built in a continuous way, it would be easier um, for there to be a singularity for, for man and machine to truly meld. I mean, it's, it's happening, I, but I think it's colonizing our thought instead of human thought colonizing artificial intelligence. It's teaching us... It's probably all about consciousness. Like, definitely we can create artificial intelligence to give us answers to, to equations or, you know, ask a question to Siri and she, she tells us yes. the information we need. But at what point is something really alive? Like, is that a development of consciousness and yeah. being aware of yourself, maybe? And it's, you know, these, these technologies are great for rote, repetitive tasks, but creativity, you know, it's, it's a big question, what is consciousness? Um, and I think for a lot of artists in particular, it becomes, it becomes poetic, and for me it's spiritual, um, and not in a, in a dogmatic way, but it has to do with feelings and... Um, you know, very, very subtle shades of awareness of this visceral world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, and it's, it's becomes very... a way very, to analyze things. Um, I, I mean, I feel like with our technology, analysis, logic, um, to me at least, these are things that maybe do not exactly describe what it is to be human. Um, I think it's, it becomes well, what these, is it these to subject. Be human? That's well, the question. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, what does it mean? <laughs> for me, the the real interest is in the subjective shades of how we experience the world and how we make models of the world and how we express ourselves, um, how 
our expressions commingle with other people's expressions, the function of language, um, abstract words is like love and empathy and sacrifice. Uh, so basically all of these things are traits of thinking. So like you could replace like your leg with something artificial and that wouldn't make you any less human, but it's all about your brain. That's, that's what makes you human. Well, the I mean, way the, that you think. It is, but I, you know, it's like when I was talking about the mind being so much bigger than our, our corporal being, I, I, the, the majority of the energy comes from our brain, but I do think also we pull from our organs and we pull from our skin, um, we pull from our bones, we pull from interactions with other people. I would actually argue that if you had an artificial leg, it would somehow, it wouldn't make you any less human, but it would change the way you think because it, it changes the way that you physically perceive the world. That's very it, it interesting. It changes like your viscera. Huh. And, um, you know. So what about if you genetically engineer something in your body? Are you less human? No, because we've been genetically engineering through selection for millions of years. I mean, that's the basis of evolution. Um, you're talking about, like, bioengineering, yeah. biohacking. I mean, it's very possible. It's a very well, possible reality. It's starting reality. to happen. I mean, you know, like, it's, it is starting to happen. Where parents can engineer the kind of children they <laughs> yeah. want to have. Well, this goes back to my fascination with chance and error and providence and where I, I love the poetic because um, I think if you started engineering things for an idea of what perfection is, which is very culturally specific and specific to whatever time you're living in. Um, you, you know, in a way, I think you would somehow breed out the things that make us great and that make us robust and make us persevere. Uh, you know, without chance and error, you would have stagnation. I mean, uh, a lot of Evolution is driven by errors within the genome. You know, punctuated equilibrium, which is put forth by Stephen Jay Gould, basically said there, there are these errors that come out of nowhere, and they're really advantageous, and they take over a population within a couple of generations. Um, and then there are people think that it happens more gradually. Uh, I think it's probably a play between the two, but. It's, it's needed. I mean, you need chance. You, you need mutations. Yeah. I, I was just actually helping an artist install over at UArt, Scott Donahue, and his, he said something that I thought was great, and he said, perfection is the enemy of the good, <laughs> um, which I really wholeheartedly agree with. Well, if everybody's perfect, then what does perfection even mean? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it just becomes homogenous. And it's, yeah. you know, like, I feel like our technologies. One of the dangers is it promotes homogeneity. It because all of this is digitally stored and it it you know like a computer is a great copying machine um, and it copies to you know like there people will talk about oh but it doesn't make perfect copies there's compressions distortions but it it copies enough. Um, for all intents and purposes, to anything that we've known before. 
and there's something very bizarre I'm noticing um, amongst younger people, and by that I'm, I'm meaning people that are like that I probably see at the university you know, between the ages like 18 and 22, and that's this nervousness, uh, you know, towards not being able to replicate something perfectly. Maybe that's always existed. Um, like what, as far as like just like within their 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 work and yeah. their thought. Um, I mean, there's a real fear of things that aren't familiar, things that haven't been tailored specifically to their worldview. I think that's human nature, though. We all want to conform, you know, to something. Even if you're trying to be an artist or trying to create unique work, you're still trying to conform to, you know, philosophies of art. I mean, you can't escape it. it's, It's true. I mean, there's, you know, to fit in and is is a, a great life need. Uh, but I, I think it's, uh, and also Kurt Vonnegut, a great Kurt Vonnegut quote, um, peer pressure is one of the strongest forces in the universe. But there's also a need to be distinct and to stand out and to think you're unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, like, it's, it's a way of declaring who we are in the universe. Uh, it's a way of, of searching for and meaning within our own life. Yes. I feel like that. I feel like our society these days is all about getting likes or getting recognition, and that it's, that defines your success. I feel like recognition and likes are are they're in s- close proximity, but they speak or describe two different things. Um, a great antidote that I think about a lot is people have built. Like the uh, like bot for Tumblr, and it's a bot that will like. It begins with liking something that one other person has liked, and then through the algorithm, it goes to liking something five people have liked, and then it um, exponentially increases from there to where it's only like something if two hundred people liked it. It only likes something next if five thousand people have liked it. It only, and then the next step is like it only like something if like five million people have liked it. And toward the end, when it's looking for things that have five million likes, what it's finding, it's all like um, Lady Gaga, yeah, <laughs> Justin Bieber. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, of course. And, you know, these are recognized people. And I wonder people, if all but, of their likes are even real people, which probably they aren't. Well, you can, you can buy likes. You can buy yeah. bots. You know, you can create bots to like your work. You can purchase, you know, from programmers who basically create bots that will like other people's work. So it's, it's a way of, of manipulating impressions tend to be into things. And not, I'm not purposely esoteric and obscure, but I often will find things that fascinate me and be like, oh, why don't more people like this? Um, and then it's something that I am into becomes very oh. popular. Actually, I get I get happy. I think at yeah. one point, like you know, like you, when you're a teenager, you want to be unique. And I can remember, you know, like early '90s, if things got too popular, then you didn't like it because right. the mainstream. <laughs> but I, I'm, you know, I feel like I hope I've matured past that. When I find something, some that things is, that are mainstream are really good. Yeah, and it it also depends on what culture that you're in. You know, like. The average person on the street might not be aware of the the contributions of um, Buckminster Fuller, and but then we're sitting in a room where he's you know, he's proudly displayed on the wall. Um, 
So, <laughs> yeah, and he's kind. Of, yeah, I mean, he's like a superstar of 20th century um, design and urban planning. Mm-hmm. And but I, I do I get happy when things that were obscure or more toward the margin move toward the center. Um, yeah, I do think with our technologies, though, in the past decade, and maybe there's a big we're due for a reshuffling. Um, it, the people that are making big impressions and splashes do have to have like 5 million likes, 50 million likes. Well, you can just get lost in the sea of information th- if you don't, yeah, you know. Yeah, I think that that's what it is, is the, this kind of tsunami of information that we've been hit with that we don't know how to and pare again, down. Talking about networks, I mean, I feel like information is passed through networks nowadays, like... You know, how many people get their news off of Facebook, which is basically they're getting news from people who they're friends with and not from, like... It is, and it becomes a, a problem because then you just create echo chambers. I, I mean, I, you know, browse Facebook, accurate. I browse Twitter, yeah. um, I read the New York Times, and especially after this last election, it's like, why do I read the New York Times? Especially if somebody that did not grow up in the Northeast. I'm, I feel like I'm always coming to it as a skeptic and a critic and an outsider and it's uh, you know it's, it's head and shoulders above most other newspapers they're they're still well funded I, well you're a responsible consumer most yeah. people just get news from wherever so. <laughs> but it's but even like the New York Times has to be decoded and they yeah. they didn't they, they don't have a good sense of what most of the country is about. Um, I mean, but, you know, they're all about New York City, which likes to see itself as being the center of the universe. Um, when, and maybe 50 years ago, when we, you know, talking about networks, when there were more centralized networks, um, it was truer than now, where we have much more decentralized and distributed networks. And it does, you know, so again, I'm talking about the these walled-off gardens of the internet to where you do have so many people going to Facebook, so many people going to Tumblr, maybe Tumblr is falling out of fashion, uh, Twitter um, seems to have a new relevance with uh, you know, general dissatisfaction um, and, and, and various protests. You know, it's, they have, they're, they're creating their own functions, but they're corporate controlled and they're they give the illusion of a democracy where you can say oh but I have a voice I can have a Facebook page and I can have a Twitter page and you know but but who's reading it that's that's the thing like that, where are you along the network do you have you know five nodes do you have 50 500 5000 uh, Facebook puts a cap on how many friends you can have, but oh, you're... Oh, do they? Yes. I did not know that. I guess I've never reached <laughs> Me neither. Um, but, you know, Twitter Twitter doesn't. Um, Tumblr doesn't. And I'm thinking back to the, the early days before it was the World Wide Web when it was literally mostly just the military and um, universities talking to one another. You... you had something similar to what you have now, where it was like these walled gardens, and then around the late '80s, and especially in the when when um, you had web browsers like Mosaic and Windows 95 came out, it became this big explosion to where even though most people were not on the net, there was this 
idea that this was going to be a new type of global democracy because you could you could create your own web page and they had like geocities and um, and it was it had yet to consolidate into these corporate interests they were you know corporations were really trying to figure out how can we get in on this and it was a big disruptor to the music industry um, mm -hmm. and but now it's really you know things are solidifying I was reading this article in the uh, 3D Atavist Manifesto, which is an interesting online PDF about the culture and potential surrounding 3D printing. And this guy wrote a critique about the 3D printing, Ben Valentine, who lives in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And he was saying, you know, what really seems to be emerging is not this new democracy, but various stacks. And it was his way of describing a phenomenon that Jaron Lanier called the siren servers, which was like these centralized networks that all information goes through, and that's how they pull their both economic and cultural capital. And it's becoming very difficult if you're part of these machinations to escape that. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, um, I've read some statistics that you know 60% of the globe doesn't have continuous internet access. Yeah. So it's really a Western industrialized, post-industrialized phenomenon. A lot of people are just going about their business the way they have for eons. Um, but it, you know, like if you live in a post-industrial society, you, have, it, you live in a different world. You basically. live in a completely different world, and you live you live in a world that puts you out of touch with what came before. Um, with really it, being human, in a way. In, in many ways. I mean, our hierarchy of needs are collapsed to where it, become, it becomes whims and wants that drive us. Um, I, was, I was just watching uh, the Herzog documentary, Lo and Behold, and they were talking about a disruption of the net, and they were talking to a lot of people that have, are within uh, computer science or IT, and they were like, oh, if the internet went down, how would I get my food? You know, like all they, they, everything is on, like they just have it all delivered. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's like, I'm savvy. I feel that way. No. You feel that, I was going to say, it's like, I feel like I'm savvy enough, but I'm like, how do, no, you, how do you allow yourself to get to that point? Well, I, mean, I think I, a lot of people are there, and which, which goes back to the concept of your show. Like, you know, these technological devices are becoming extensions of ourselves. They, they are but they're not within us like they they colonize can our, we our, separate the two that's we i think we still can they they are colonizing our thoughts they have changed the way if you're in a post-industrial society they, they do change the way you think i, I mean, think our minds people, how many times have you like been around someone who like you're hanging out with but they're like constantly posting about hanging out with you online i mean you know what i mean like it's just i I, I, that, I see it all the time yes yeah. So people are thinking about yeah. this, this. But we both have children, so that, <laughs> that will give you another perspective. Like I, when I go home and, I mean, there's always competition with screens. Um, and there, it has been since the invention of the cathode ray tube. I mean, that's always been there or something, you know, like uh, or otherwise it would be hard to, you know, everybody would live in a house and get along with one another. I feel like and we like do need talk. some, some <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> um, 
I think we can. I think we can get back to that pretty quickly, or at least. I don't think I know many people who could never. You don't think they ever would? I think it would. I think it would be a shock. Maybe I don't. I. I mean, it's it's deeply ingrained in our society at this point in Western society. It it is. I, I guess it just depends on how much you would want to. I mean, it was. It becomes an issue of desire because we, you know, unless there was a cataclysmic event, you, through your own inclination, you just wouldn't step away or couldn't. You know, you'd lose your job. You'd, I don't depend on technology to bring me food, but I depend on it to earn a living. Yeah. Um, well, that's true for a lot of people, myself yeah. included. And it's and so I think it does, you know it has changed the form of our thoughts and it probably has changed the structure of our brains. I think our brains are really um, malleable. I mean I think that, like neuroplasticity is fascinating and I it, you know like maybe in the future they'll be able to study somebody their entire life and watch how brain networks change through introduction of new technologies versus another control group that does not have technology. Um, it sounds like a really interesting study. Yeah, and it was it would be something that, you know, and it, brain it, could networks go, it could go can on change. it could go on across generations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they, they can it's it's hard. It's, it's these things aren't aren't easy. Um, one of the things about the the exhibition that I tried to pair against one another were objects that I did make using a tablet and 3D printed versus objects that were very much hand felt um, and using ancient processes such as bronze casting. Um, and, and something that I was fascinated with and probably just my own inclination and in, in coming out of my own subjective aesthetic is there there were connections. You know, there were things that I w made um, using programs such as Sculpt Plus and Rhino and various tablet-based like mesh programs and then either had Shapeways print or printed over at Nextfab um, that, that I could not have made any other way because of the intuitive nature and or the limitations of um, a program that was more built for CAD versus modeling. But, the, you know, you, I'm dealing with, uh, I'm not dealing with the limitations of gravity when I create things for a 3D mesh the way I'm dealing with the limitations of gravity when I'm making a sculpture in the real world. But I, I, I saw one feed into the other mm -hmm. um, in a positive feedback loop. Uh, and the same with with the wall drawings. I was thinking of something. I'm I'm not someone that looks to replicate something. I want to suggest. Um, I'm looking for some type of poetic distillation. And so with the wall drawings, instead of trying to faithfully recreate brain scans or, um, you know, various. Uh, stratigraphic slices of your gray matter, I went into the inkblot print because I was like, oh, you know, like there's a symmetry to your mind and the, these blot prints look very much like gray matter to me. Yeah. Um, the networks... Well, it's interesting because ink, traditional inkblots are, you know, black and white. 
but your ink blasts on the walls are very, very faint. So why, why did you decide to make them kind of, um, you know, something that emerges after you stand in the space for a while? I wanted to reward deep looking, and I wanted to reward contemplation and noticing the periphery. Um, and I wanted the, the objects that I saw as distillation of thought, memory, feeling to come to the foreground and these wall drawings to, to inform that, but kind of, you know, it's like, the, the, it's like a memory screen or, you know, things that are, you're trying to retrieve from your, your mind um, that are maybe hazy and maybe misremembered or maybe completely fabricated. And I thought... Or maybe even things that we don't know yet. Yes. We yet to discover. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm one of the things through the studies is like hard, objective data on clairvoyance, which does seem to exist. Um, they can't describe it, but it seems to be some type of electromagnetic phenomenon that some people are able to... Literally, their mind can co-mingle at a frequency of other people's and they can they can you know see your thoughts in a way mm -hmm. I mean that's probably a fairly glib description of what's going on um, maybe they have more access to the collective consciousness that we all participate in yes or like local consciousnesses I mean I think the collective consciousness that would be another fascinating area of study like how could you map that it's not kind of this amorphous cloud. It probably is specific networks that's constantly and rapidly changing as people, you know, become in uh, local proximity to one another, move around. Um, you know, and I think the net really is starting to shape this because a lot of our communication is through our devices uh, outside of my immediate family. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and how you would map that... Well, with humans, it's also about, like, energy, because we're all just balls of energy and kind yes. of, like, vibrations. Um, we're all kind of, you know, our electrons are vibrating, and maybe we can pick up each other's kind of kinetic I, I energy. I completely uh, believe that. I mean, the, the electromagnetic spectrum is vast. I mean, yeah, like microwaves, radio waves, gamma rays, infrared, ultraviolet, what we... Um, what we see, and a lot of information is colonized toward the ocular, is such a small band on, on that frequency. Yeah. I mean, it's really, and it's, it's, you know, you have like birds see more on the electromagnetic frequency than we do. Um, that's why they're able to eat different red berries to where if we were going to eat every red berry, we'd eat something poisonous. It literally looks different to them. Um, you know, that visual phenomenon is fascinating, but it's so small. It's so, um, you know, there's, there's so much more. Radio waves are such a small little area on the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, I mean, who knows? Well, I mean, we understand four forces of nature, uh, but there seems to be so much more out there with dark energy and dark mass that we don't understand. Uh, and tying this back into the mind and, and also that some of the techniques that I felt I expanded my mind by learning with 3D printing, um, th these technologies are able to build models 
on phenomenon that are at such a great scale that just pure computation and information wouldn't give us a good picture. Um, in the structure of our universe, which does seem to be sponge-like and well, somewhat so like in our way, brain. Yeah, in a way our minds can't comprehend that because, for example, like in math, we can only really comprehend the 3D, but there's like multiple, multiple yes. dimensions beyond that that we just, as our, our brains can't comprehend, but they're still there. But through, through visual models, like, um, you know, like, like a lot of string theory doesn't, exist outside of like 11 dimensions but you can you can create these visual models that give you a bit more of an understanding or something to hold on to they're, they're um, supposed to be shadows or uh, yeah right yeah or holograms like, exactly four-dimensional holograms yeah. yeah and I mean that's that's one of the things that, that does fascinate me with our new technologies is the way that it it places us within a much grander universe that we can start to see its form. Yeah, we can we can we can make physical models that we understand that, may, that maybe only exist in three dimensional space, but yeah. will suggest things in four to eleven dimensions now. Um, and they and through that we can start to qualify things. We can look for not only the objective but the subjective within these models. In, in a way that before it was just like cipher, it was in, impenetrable to us. I mean, to you know, early models of the universe were something that were just like a, an ellipse, and now it looks like something like a sponge, or it looks like neural connections. I mean, I, I literally see clusters of stars as being neurons, and then where uh, mass seems to concentrate along um, areas of dark energy. Those could be the axons, and it, it, there's a there's a great similarity in my mind, visually, from the macro, uh, like from universal models, mm -hmm. to the micro, to what we have within us. I mean, networks are applied to analyze any type of complex system. Yes. So. And then there seems to be this real echoing of form. Mm -hmm. Maybe because it's all based on the same math? I don't know. What we're, I mean, the math is a language that we use to describe these natural phenomenon. Um, I mean, they're all subjective to the, the four main forces, you know, like the big one, electromagnetic energy, the strong force, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, and then gravity, which I'm always interested in because it's it's what we perceive through our corporal being the most. Um, you know, everybody understands gravity; you can feel it, but it seems to be the weakest of those forces, and it's the one that's actually not reconciled in with the other three. So I sometimes wonder if it really exists, if it's if if what we call gravity is actually just something describing a different phenomenon. Visual models that technology has been able to provide us with, there are gravity maps because our Earth um, has different densities and you know, the, it has and this... Altitudes, I guess, I don't know if that makes a difference. It, yeah, it does. It has you know, different altitudes. It's not a perfect sphere and you have this kind of like, at our best guess, this spinning 
ball of molten iron at its core that creates the, our magnetic fields. And so like gravity actually does shift, there are gravity maps. And if you look at these models, like the Earth looks like some weird pear or something, and they, it changes due to tectonic forces and weather patterns. Um, and so you do actually you have like heavy gravity days, light gravity days. Um, so it becomes something like very uh, fluid in a way, instead of this overall tectonic force. I guess that you we can't, can't really escape. comprehend that though. I've never had a, a low gravity day versus a high gravity you, day. You know, I had <laughs> when I was a when I was a kid, and like I I was in high school, I was really really focused on skateboarding. It's something that still I still do, and I still really informs who I am. But I did feel like I had like low gravity days versus high, high gravity really? days. Yeah, especially if I was just like um, quantifying something. Like if I just had, if I was just like stacking something up and it's like, okay, I'm gonna ollie this. I'm gonna, like every day I'm gonna ollie this thing. And it's like this, the bar, right? And then some days, no matter what, I could, I could get over it easy. Other days it would take me many more tries. You don't think it had anything to do with like your muscles? What, you know, like it, 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 that was one of the things, but sometimes I would feel like physically more robust on one day, but not be able to, to break free of gravity as easily huh. as maybe like a day. I mean, there's, there are many, many factors being played in. That's very interesting. But I did, I did you know, and I just, um, now I'm just happy to be out and rolling around on my <laughs> skateboard. <laughs> All right, I want to go back to one um, thing you talked about in your show description. Who is Bravo Starkweather? Okay, so this was a way of thinking about um, how am I going to tie this all together and how is this not going to be completely about me. Uh, and so I, I, my thinking was I'm going to approach this indirectly, and I'm going to create this character, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody that, like, writes stories, but could I do this? You know, so I have this, like, character, Bravo Starkweather, that kind of is a every person. Um, you know, I was also thinking about uh, the emergence of gender fluidity amongst young people and just what, you know, like the cultural zeitgeist that like all of a sudden we have this new election and it's like the pendulum is severely shifting back to the right. But in the past year going up to this, it was, you know, it was like, yeah, I mean, who, who knows? Things are in flux. So it was like kind of creating this character of flux. Um, and, and so like Bravo Starkweather, who is this person? Uh, and so I started creating these objects and, I, and it was a way of, um, you know, it's like a, an oblique self-portrait. This person is me, but it's people that I've known and people I have memories with and old friends that we get together and reminisce. It's nostalgia. Uh, so would you say that the, the objects in your show are kind of artifacts that Bravo Starkweather, like, encounters on his journey? I, I saw them as, like... Um, distillations of experience. They're not illustrations, although some things are uh, fairly literal, like there's a bone gun, and I, I was thinking like this person has been in the military or around the military the same way that I have been. Like this person is 
like my friends that joined the military as a way of getting out of the deep south. I, I really, it became a, an amalgamation of many people that I knew. And then it became something like a skin that I almost shed. It was not something very, very strict that I had to adhere to. Um, but it became different projects. I did a project through the New Hive website for the Digital Fringe that was um, a very suggestive, open-ended take. It was a series of web pages that you would could flick through. <clears throat> um, and I'm, I feel like I'm a very, uh, I try to be a poetic thinker and I see the world as metaphor. Um, and I see the world as being nonlinear, yeah. um, both in network and also in the nature of, of time and space. Well, and maybe we perceive time as linear, but in the bigger spectrum, it's not. Did you see Arrival? I didn't. It's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are like big, big questions, and these are things that or language. Interstellar, have you seen that? Yes. Where time is just completely relative. Yeah, I mean, this is linear, I guess, but it's the we have time. I mean, there are, there are different conversations. There's this great book I read. Um, it was a conversations of Goodell and Einstein, and they would talk about why do we have time? What does this express? Uh, they, you know, the, one of the one of the ideas is we have time, so everything won't happen at once. Um, another, I mean, f you know. Uh, in physics, they have an arrow of time to basically just describe the direction of interaction. Mm -hmm. um, the second law of thermodynamics hinges on time, basically heat loss and entropy. Like that, that's time in physics. Things move towards uh, dispersion either, of energy. Yeah, yeah dispersion of energy. Um, what we would call chaos that other people might see as just being the stablest form of you know the the, the basically the stablest form so one one thing that i found very interesting you described uh your work as 21st century experimental anthropology can you talk a little bit more about that yes so uh when i was young man, I was a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut, and I still am, um, but I mean, he made this huge impression on me in my late teens and early 20s, and so when I was getting my undergrad degree, I double majored in sculpture and anthropology, and getting a degree in anthropology, to me, is one of the most enriching things I've ever done. Um, I'm truly up there with, like, raising a family. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's like it, it was a way of structure. It happened beforehand, right? But mm -hmm. it's a way of structuring your thought and a way of looking at the world and looking at much bigger patterns and where we fit in with these patterns and what is culturally relative. Well, why do we what's need acceptable. anthropology? Just, just as a, just as a rhetorical question. Why do we need it? Yeah. I, I mean, or I do think, we I, need I think it? in America, it's really like it's at its lowest ebb. Yeah. You know, it's like it's. I, th I think people want it forgotten about because it's easier to control people if they don't see larger patterns or question why they do things or question is this just culturally relative to this moment in time um, you know, it, to me we need it because it's a way of enriching this 
vast voyage of humanity. And like it's everything, our material culture, our evolution, it's a big, very long, convoluted story. And you need storytellers and you need people to study these things to give it form so it doesn't just look like uh, a briar patch. And, when, and it was a way of, for me to approach art. When, when I was studying anthropology, I was like, oh, you know, like we, most of anthropologists study material culture that often came out of an art-making, craft-making tradition. The more they're looking at, especially like um, the Upper Paleolithic Revolution, and even before that, they're finding ancient instances of art. Um, oftentimes, these things were attributed to Homo sapiens, but now they're, some of them are being pushed back, dated further, um, attributed to Neanderthal. Uh, you know, looking at human evolution, physical anthropology, the Max Planck Institute for Anthropology and Archaeology mapped the Neanderthal genome, and there's this shocking revolution that most of the globe has a, a lot of these Neanderthal alleles, and depending on where you look at these, these genes and the markers, you could have up to, even though overall it's between like 2 and 5%, mm -hmm. in specific locations it could be up to 80%. Yeah. Well, I did a 23andMe analysis, and my brother did too, and, and I'm less Neanderthal than him. Okay. So. Which is strange because <laughs> they, they're, you know, like it, it's still in the infancy of studying this phenomenon, but they're, you know, like there are people that don't want to believe this and people that have said, oh, well, if it happened, then it would make, you know, males, it would degenerate the Y chromosome and they would be sterile and, you know, <laughs> then it's, the world would stop <laughs> there would be no more well, humans it becomes it, it, it's, this is something that's very 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 human and, and says something about our mind is we need the other to separate ourselves from and to think we're better than and to find out that you are the other that you always thought you were better than well yeah and you know like this type of diversity to me is fascinating it makes a richer world and then you look closer at the, the picture and, and the models that seem to emerge is there's more similarities um, across specific uh, geographic populations than there are differences. Of course. And there's more differences within small set um, populations than there are similarities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, it's like, and art is culture, you know, like, and for me, like, being a curator, being an artist is a way of being, of, it's a, to me, it's, it is experimental, but it's also applied anthropology. You become an engine of culture. So what do you think the cultural artifacts will be of our generation now? Well, right now we're in something like the, the Plasticine, you know, we're moving past the, the anthropocene, how do you pronounce it? Anthropocene. Anthropocene. Uh, um, now we're in something like the plasticine, where it's plastics, uh, petroleum, um, man-made materials. Yes, synthetics. Uh, with uh, global climate change, people are talking about the Cthulhu scene. These immense forces of nature: tsunamis, earthquakes, drought. Um, you know, like the. For, I don't think H.P. Lovecraft ever saw this his work being applied this way, but he 
directly pulled from these indomitable forces of nature that were coming in off the Atlantic Ocean, you know, that are, that are now more alive than ever. Yeah. We've, through our technology, we tried to insulate ourselves, you know, from these forces and uh, satisfy as many hierarchy of needs to where we feel like we can separate ourselves, but it's, it's not playing out that way. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so in your show, you use a lot of different materials, but one of the most interesting um, is your fingernail clippings. So is that something that you collect? Yes, it's something I started collecting maybe a decade ago, and I probably used 20, 25% of my collection. Um, and, and it's not just your fingernails. It's not just mine, it's my, my family's. And it's funny because it's... My son used to gather them. He used to, like, he would cut his, and my, mom, my wife would cut hers, and he would bring them to me. And he still does to a bit, um, but it's, I mean, he's becoming, he's like a tween, so he has other things on his mind. Um, <laughs> but it became this thing that seemed, like, very strange, and it, it kind of is strange to, like, harvest things from your own body, but... In other pieces, I've used my own hair. It's, you know, like there's a logical part of us that say, oh, this, once it separates from us, it is no longer me. And then there are other um, spiritual and some would say superstitious notions that, oh, maybe I shouldn't be indiscriminate with throwing these away and, and I could do something with them and make, make artifact. You know, like make things that really question the function of art and even the nature of an object. Is it artifact? Is it something like a hiving? Is it a sculpture? And they have their own structure. I mean, I love playing with limitations. And so you have something that's all the same material and it's a very similar like crescent moon structure. What can I do with this? What form, just through variation and repetition, will reveal itself to me. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like the beginning of, um, you know, like another body of work. I've made, I make work with hair, I make work with beeswax, I make work with bronze, I've, a new body of work and a new mode of thought uh, that I learned specifically for this exhibition was digital fabrication with 3D printing and CNC milling. Um, video is another mode, and these fingernails, I... It's, it's going to become a material that I'll continue to harvest for myself as long as I can. And I, was, I have an interesting story as to why I began. I was interested um, kind of at the turn of the century when we went to war, that we're still in war with now, the war on terror. And so I was thinking about ancient myths. I was like, okay, we're going to go into Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, we have no idea what we're going to get into. Like these, the, the myths there are ancient. Um, and I was thinking of um, Celtic myth and Norse myth, and in Norse myth, what signals the beginning of Ragnarok, which is the twilight of the gods, is a ship of dead man's fingernails set sail. So I was like, oh, that would be a really interesting, you know, sculpture if I made, like, a clipper ship within a bottle 
you know, like an old salty dog, and I made it all out of fingernails. And so I started gathering these things. And it was with this show, I was like, I need to use these. I'm not going to make this ship of nails because it doesn't really figure in so much with what I'm doing here. What I'm really looking for is networks and structures. And I have this material that are basically in, in scale and form homogenous. And what form, what forms will they make? Mm -hmm. So with just like tweezers, fingernails, and glue. Well, it you came out to be a, a beautiful, very delicate <laughs> sculpture, and um, it's, you know, it's, it's the conversation piece of the show. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about um, 3D glitch printing? So, this is something that, this is like the next step. Like, the, the objects that I have in the show, I wouldn't call them true glitches. Well, what what I'm, exactly I'm does about, that like, even mean? Like 3D glitch printing, just to someone who doesn't yeah. know. So, well, so there actually are, are truth. So glitches, error, errors within systems. Um, bunk code, repetition that shouldn't be there, um, forcing things like with JPEG corruption or, or like Photoshop raw is my easiest way of explaining it. You would take a image in Photoshop RAW and bring it into Audacity and turn it into an audio file and then save it as, save the audio file as a RAW file and then open it back up in, in Photoshop. I was interested in these things um, as a way of distorting image, but I was also interested in synesthesia because my daughter was young and learning to talk and teaching somebody to talk through pantomiming and sound. Wait, synesthesia is when you see colors well, it's and a, sounds? It's a commingling of okay. senses instead of everything being like colonized through the eyes. Or, right. So it, it does become like... And so, and so I was like, so you take like something visual and run it through like an auditory program. And you can do these with the OBJ files, um, although I'm not at the level to where I know like G-code that well. My glitch prints, prints are taking the OBJ files and then you, make, you turn into a stereolithographic file and then I was going down to NextFab and you can just check out, if you take the class and you get signed out, you check out a laptop and a little Bikita printer and you print your things out manually there and sometimes they pop off the spoil board and then it kind of goes haywire. It's like an error in the system. It continues to print things out exactly as it's reading the file, but because your object is no longer um, fixed to the spoil board, which is what is moving. The nozzle's not moving. And so the spoil board is moving around and it's still extruding the, the plastic. So it's just kind of making this mess. Like or, or no, no, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the extruder moves, the spoil board is stationary. But the object, if it pops off, as the extruder moves around, it'll knock it around. So with some of these, I was literally like holding it there. Um, so they're always different too. So you can't yeah. just do the same three D glitch print and have the same thing. Come not out. like not not that's like a physical glitch. Yeah. And to but I've I've found forums online where they are running their their OBJ files through Audacity and then back in, and it takes a degree of coding that I. Um, that's just beyond me right now, but it's, it's, 
like in the next year or so, or you know, like I, it's something I'm like, oh, this is fascinating because it's beautiful because it's, it's such chance and disruption and static and um, things that I find beautiful, dissonance, yeah. asymmetry. So I think it's interesting in your show you have a series of nine perfectly 3D printed um, objects that are symmetrical and, you know, no, no errors or yeah. glitches. They're not all symmetrical. Some of them are tweaked. Okay. But they do, those deal with like hyperbolic space. And with those, I saw, I saw as like a modified neocortex. Like mm-hmm. these are distilled thought if, you know, like if we had, if we were like neurojacked or neurohacked. Interesting. And then the the ones behind them are more they're like archaic. So the ones 3D behind prints. them are the are the, the ones with errors. Yes. And okay. Yeah, and those are and some of them actually came like I found out how hard it is to make the objects that I make and to successfully three D print them because there are like two or three successful prints or prints that I had more of a hand in from start to finish. But most of them erred, mm-hmm. and they so erred in So you take a file that, that exists somewhere out that someone else made, and you put an error into it. No, they did. No. The, those ones are they erred physically. They erred in okay. the printing. Gotcha. The, all the files I created myself from scratch. Okay. okay. Cool. Um, but but the next step for me is to play with the file error, the file itself, mm-hmm. and get either good enough at printing or find printers that are better. Would a, would a printer, um, what do you call the place that you send? Shapeways. Shapeways. Would yeah. they print something with a glitch in it? I don't, probably not. I mean, that the, what I found is you kind of have to do these things yourself because they're mostly dealing with designers that mm-hmm. aren't trying to make these crazy things. <laughs> you know, like they want... Also, it's a way to push their equipment. <laughs> Maybe they don't want it to break or something. Yeah, or they don't want somebody like suing them, saying, why do you print this? <laughs> or it breaking in transit. Um, but I mean, fascinating things are, are happening in universities and labs. You, you kind of have to have the equipment and do it yourself at this point. Mm-hmm. But it's a big, wide world. I mean... I'm really interested in, in trying to build an extruder that recycles plastic. Oh, yeah. So I'm not just creating more, you know, petroleum-based Well, objects. have you ever, I mean, there's, there's 3D printers that print all kinds of different materials. Oh, yeah. There's metal. Like even human cells. <laughs> yes. And so that's where I'm, I'm looking to pair up with people that have that technology, people that are into... Um, Really, you know, just experimental anthropology mm-hmm. away. A because when you create things like that, you have conversations and you, you generate culture. You're not only, and I think anthropology should be focused not only on studying material culture, but also at this point um, generating culture. Yeah. So what's, where's the boundary between art and anthropology? I don't, I mean, I'm interested in porous boundaries. I, you know, they meet, to me they meet in the physical space of the quote-unquote artifact or sacred object or talisman or fetish, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's a boundary between those that study and those that make. Uh, I don't think there's a boundary between those that analyze and those that actively go into the spirit world. It's, it's, you know, it's like when, when anthropologists would study 
and it's they have these awful terms because you would really need to go they're, they're culturally specific you would need to go into the culture itself and say what do you call your your priest or your well, so an doctor object has to have or a your spiritual value to be it doesn't have to but oftentimes up until you know like the past 100 150 years they did mm-hmm. you know there was a art had a spiritual need to it even you know like Kandinsky's regarding the spiritual and art it's only very very recent and it, it dovetails in with like late stage capitalism that art has just been about money and just been about well, it's investment it's always been about money as it's well much as much more it was, a, it was about it was a spiritual nature i mean you had the power and control of the catholic church for 500 years but these you were had lots of money these were yes <laughs> but these were spiritual objects these were ways of of going into the spirit world mm-hmm. and being able to bring other people with you and being able to kind of make dispatches from uh, your revelations. But the, so the, the, the majority objects? of the history of art it has a spiritual nature to it. Fetish, um, reproduction, these are all things that I do. I mean, they, they have biological functions, mm-hmm. but why, why else would you make them? Would you say that the objects in your show have a spiritual nature? To me, they do. I mean, you don't have to view the world that way to get something from them. But, I mean, definitely, like, to me, art has a deeply spiritual nature. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you can quantify or qualify. And it's not something... It's something, you know, it's like it's my kind of subversive intervention into a space like the Esner Klein, which is very much dealing with science and technology. Um... You know, I come from, my father was a... Well, science a, and technology doesn't usually address spirituality. Not always, but you do find people that have a deep spiritual need. Um, you know, like, like Kurt Godel, I was talking about him. He was, you know, he, he wrote all these proofs to prove the existence of God. Um, it, I think this... this Disregard of the spirit is something very current and, and, you know, like within the past 30 years. And if you look at the history of humanity, which depending on how you look at our material culture, at its shallowest is like 150,000 years old. Mm-hmm. At its deepest is like 2.5 million. They usually think, you know, anthropologists see the use of stone tools as what separated us from... Um, Australopithecanthus to the Homo, Homo habilis, mm-hmm. Homo erectus. You start to see the appearance of flint napping and tool use, person scavenging. So, like you know, material culture. It's hard for me to think. Why would people do this? Because it's it's difficult. It's it usually is easier to find an eco niche where you just gather. I mean, not now because we're turning the world into concrete and glass boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, like animals evolved to, f- to exploit eco-niches because it was easier mm-hmm. in a way. Tool use is hard. And you, you, there has to be, to me, there has to be like a deeper reason behind it other than just substance strategies because there would be other ways of getting food and water. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
And I hope everyone can check out Geist Denkenheit at the Esther Klein Gallery. Well, thanks so much for this opportunity. It was really enriching.